Welcome to those that are watching with us online. Thank you for those that are in the room with us. Let me, uh, I told you last week that this week I'd have a little more information about spring equip and I do, and I'm going to say this for the next three weeks to make sure everybody in here knows what's going on, but particularly for those of, those of you that regularly join us live online is when this series is over, the five solas series is over on March 23rd, that will be our last Wednesday night where Equip is live, all right? It'll still be recorded and it'll still be podcast. So you'll, those of you that are listening to this later, sometime in the future, um, a, a further Equip series will continue to be um, done online, but not live because we're not going to do Equip in the worship center anymore. We're going to move back to the fellowship hall starting March the 30th. The move back to the fellowship hall is because uh, there's a thing that we've been missing for the last two years in Equip, and that is the ability to discuss together. That's always been an important part of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, which is why we call this Equip, is the ability to discuss and to do things together. And we moved in here because of COVID and the ability to be able to live stream. Um, and we've done that for just as long as we can do it, but it's time to, to move back. So on March the 30th, uh, we will still only have one spring equip option. In the fall, we're going to go back to multiple options. There's going to be several changes to equip starting in the fall that we're still working through. But on March the 30th, a new, a new equip semester will begin, spring equip it's going to be 10 weeks on finding your place in, the, in God's mission for our church. And our new pastor, Pastor Jay, is going to be teaching that equip. It's material that was developed by the North American Mission Board and the SEND Network, helping people find their place in the mission. I'm really excited uh, about this. There's going to be interactive components to it, but people that, uh, that work, we recognize we have guys that are uh, on duty. We have people that get off of work late. We have folks that, that are traveling. They can't be here. So we're still going to podcast it, uh, but not do it live on Facebook. So that will go away in just a couple of weeks or it'll go away. The 23rd will be the last week for that. Everything will move into the fellowship hall. And then as you've probably already heard me say, um, starting uh, that week, starting on the 30th, I'm not going to be a part of adult equip anymore until we hire uh, a new student pastor. Until we hire what we're calling, you can be the first people to hear about this, um, the job posting that'll go live this week. We're going to be calling this pastor for next generation ministries at our church. So it was called Family Pastor, and with the uh, with Michael here now working, or not with uh, Jay here working with uh, adult discipleship, we felt like Family Pastor may be a little confusing for who's doing what. And so this is going to be a pastor that oversees all ministries for people 18 and under in our church. Now Carolyn and Christy still going to work here in preschool and kids ministry. This this person will give pastoral uh, oversight to them and implementation of ministry in our student ministry. Uh, and so until that person gets here, which we hope is by the end of the summer, early fall, uh, I'm going to be upstairs on Wednesday nights. I'm going to be hanging out with our students and teaching them and working with our student team and uh, seeing what happens in our kids ministry and watching what happens in our preschool ministry. It's been a long time since I've gotten to do that and I need to be able to do that and to be able to give my attention there fully during uh, the spring and the summer. And so Jay, who also, the, regardless of if I was doing that, he was still going to teach this spring uh, because uh, Equip falls under his new area of responsibility as our adult discipleship and outreach pastor. So all of that starts on March 30th, meaning I've got three weeks left, this week and two more. 
And then Jay will pick up with uh, this new material on the 30th. And we'll give you a schedule and all of that uh, at, at that time. So let me pray for us and we will get started with um, our session today. God, thank you uh, for bringing us together, for our opportunity to study. We should never take for granted the ability to gather. We recognize there are Christians today who wish they had the freedom to gather in the same way that we are gathered and to do this openly and publicly. And so God, we thank you for, for that freedom, for providing that for our congregation. I thank you for people that want to learn and grow in their faith. And uh, whether they're in person here or they're joining us at, um, through one of our digital platforms, we're, we're just grateful, God, for um, the, the gathered church and even the scattered church who wants to, to learn and to grow. God, would you bless our time that we spend uh, in your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So <clears throat> where we're picking up now, we've got two doctrines, our two solas left, um, that salvation is in Christ alone and for the glory of God alone. And so what I'm going to do is uh, the next three weeks, I'm going to do like I did the previous three weeks. And I'm going to do the two, um, really kind of some doctrinal teaching this week and next week. This week's going to be on uh, that salvation is in Christ alone. And next week will be that it is for the glory of God alone. And then I'll do one wrap-up week, talking about why those things mattered in the Reformation, why they matter now, and then probably just a little bit on why uh, all of this still matters now as we kind of close out this winter equip session, uh, looking towards... Uh, the spring equipped starting on March 30th. So today's subject is that salvation is in Christ alone. There's a lot that I could talk about here. Um, again, I, I know I recommend them every week, but the books, they, as we go through the series, the books start disappearing in the Equip Center. There's still at least one copy of every book out there, but most of the first two or three are gone now. Um, but this one on Christ alone, written by, um, I think Stephen Wellham wrote that book, who is the uh, theology professor at Southern Seminary. Not all these books were written by um, Southern Baptists, but that one was. Um, and uh, Wellam is one of the smartest guys in the room. I mean, he really does a great job. He understands theology to a level that um, I could only ever dream. Um, he uh, co-authored a book called uh, Kingdom Through Covenant that is one of the, if you want something that to uh, uh, really challenge you theo theologically by the book Kingdom Through Covenant by uh, Wellam and Gentry and, and work your way through that. And in about 10 years, when you get done, come and tell me what it said, because I'm still wondering at times uh, what that book said. Uh, but he did a great job. I'm going to talk only about two of the things that he talked about in that book uh, tonight. I'm only going to have time to talk about two of them and probably not time to talk about uh, both of them to the extent that I have prepared. Uh, but I highly recommend you read that. Some of you keep telling me like, I've just started at the beginning and I'm working my way through these five books. That's great. Maybe it's going to take you all year. Or maybe it's going to take you longer than that. If you're just kind of a slower reader or slower processor, that's great. Buy all five of these books or get all five of these books from the Equip Center. And uh, I promise you, you will benefit from working your way through them. But the subject today, now that we've seen that we want to base our understanding of salvation in Scripture alone, that, scripture, that salvation is imparted to us by grace through faith alone, uh, meaning that it is not by merit, it's not because God saw something good in us, and it is also not because we did something good, but it is by grace through faith 
now we get to in Jesus alone. It is now, we turn our attention now to the object of our faith. What is it that we actually believe in? Actually, a better question, not what is it that we believe in, but who? <laughs> who is the object of our faith? Well, it is Jesus, uh, that we are not believing in anything other than Jesus crucified, as the Apostle Paul writes, that it is Christ and him crucified that we are placing our faith in that brings salvation in our lives. And so I want us to explore two things about Christ today. Uh, I think it's chapter five and chapter seven and eight that Wellam covers these two subjects in that book. If you have it, or if you have, you're gonna pick it up when we're done today. Uh, he covers both of these ideas in that book along with other things. The first is really dealing with the person of Jesus um, by viewing him as the fulfillment of three Old Testament offices. So Jesus, the person of Jesus and the fulfillment of three Old Testament, prophet, uh, Old Testament offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, when I say the terms, the, the words prophet, priest, and king, um, and put that in light of the Old Testament, knowing that I'm talking primarily, looking around this room to people who've been students of God's word for at least some period of time, um, your minds automatically go to certain prophets, certain priests, and certain kings in the Old Testament. But when we take a, a, a big picture view of the Old Testament, these three positions, what we will refer to as offices, really kind of rise to the top and, and speak to the, the grand narrative of the story of redemption. It would be difficult to talk about the story of redemption in the Old Testament without running through, at least briefly, um, who the prophets were, in a broad sense, not in the, the narrow sense of the prophets as in like just the, the prophetic section of the Old Testament, but the office of prophet in the Old Testament, the office of priest in the Old Testament, the one who represented the people, uh, the one who represented the people of God before God, uh, making sacrifices on their behalf, praying on their behalf. Um, and then the king, the one who uh, rules in God's place over the people of God. Right, uh, and and so you, when I say things like uh, prophet, you mind automatically probably goes to maybe because we're studying on Sunday mornings and sermons, right? Daniel, who was was a prophet, even though Jews don't typically consider Daniel to be a prophet, um, and that has more to do with a historical timeline than than it does anything else. But Daniel certainly functioned as a prophet in certain senses. Um, but prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah would certainly be prophets that we would think of. But the, the office of prophet goes back much further than that. We, there, are there are ways that we can see Moses as a prophet. We can see Abraham as a prophet. We can see Noah as a prophet. We can go all the way back uh, even into Adam and seeing Adam, certain hints of uh, the prophetic office in, in Adam. The same is true with uh, priests that the priests weren't just the Levitical priests that are established under um, the Mosaic covenant with God, uh, but that, that Abraham 
operated in a way as a priest. There was even a priest named Melchizedek, if you remember our series in Genesis, a priest named Melchizedek that was, that was a priest of God that was different than other priests foreshadowing Jesus, who would be this different kind of, of priest. And then king, right? Our minds, when I say king of Israel, if your mind goes to anybody other than David, I would really like to know why, because that's who my mind goes to, right? David, kind of the epitome of the king of Israel, um, where, where God promised to establish this, this kingly line through David and ultimately his son Solomon that divides after that and that Jesus becomes the fulfillment of. And so I want to think about these three, these three offices uh, for our first, the first part of tonight and, and look specifically at how Jesus fulfills them, how Jesus becomes the new and better and ultimate prophet, priest, and king and then why that matters when we are looking to him as the object of our faith, that we have faith in Jesus as all three of these, and that combining these three together make him um, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So the first is Christ as prophet. To think about Jesus as prophet, we must first understand that we were told, the Old Testament people of God were told that one day one would come and would represent um, would be a prophet in the same way that Moses was a prophet, but in a new and better sense. In Deuteronomy 18, um, the Lord, we're, we're told this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Me is Moses. Moses is speaking here. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my word in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now I'd say, well, is this really fulfilled in Jesus? It is. It's, it's partially like so many other things in, in uh, Old Testament and even New Testament prophecy. There is a now and a not yet fulfillment. The now fulfillment of this, if you went to small group on Sunday, you already studied because the now fulfillment of this is Joshua, right? That God raises up in the line of Moses, uh, not, not the genealogical line, but in the spiritual sense, uh, raises up Joshua to replace Moses and that the people of God then are instructed by the Lord to listen to uh, Joshua. But quickly we begin to see there's uh, the, the New Testament begins to look at this prophetically. And so in, I believe it's in Acts chapter four, uh, when the gospel is being proclaimed and being defended in front of uh, those who are seeking to persecute the New Testament church, they look back on Deuteronomy 18 and are like, one, one was supposed to come. How in the world did you, did you miss it? Jesus himself identifies himself as this prophet. In John chapter six, we read, when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, actually, this is the people looking at him. This, indeed is, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the, the Jews in the, in the first century were expecting one to come in the line of Moses. And this is what the people saw when they saw what Jesus could do. They, they said, when they say this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world, they were thinking about Deuteronomy 18. They were thinking about the, the prophetic line of Moses, that there would be one who would come who would be like Moses, but in a new and better sense. That Jesus is, the, is 
um, not only, as we're going to see in a minute, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament office of prophet. The, the New Testament epistles don't really talk about Jesus as in, in the role of prophet. They more often talk about him in the role of priest and of king. But it is because it is an assumed role. They, uh, they assume that Christ um, fulfilled the role of the Old Testament prophets because the Old Testament prophecies that the prophets were making were all find their yes in him. Jesus says this about himself in Luke 24, 7. He says, in the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures that were concerning himself. Now, when, when does this take place? Luke 24 takes place after the resurrection, right? Then he appears to some guys on the road to Emmaus and, um, and he, he's walking with them and, and in a miraculous way, kind of disguised himself from them, meaning Jesus like changed his appearance so that they would know he was. And here they walk and they talk about scripture. And what is it that Jesus does? He, he shows them how the whole Old Testament, everything that was contained in the scriptures, that's the scriptures in that day would have been the Old Testament, that it was all pointing to him. But the difference between the Old Testament prophet and Jesus, the fulfillment of the, uh, of the prophetic office is that Jesus wasn't merely a messenger of God's revelation, but was himself the source of God's revelation. This is why Jesus was able to say in places like the Sermon on the Mount. So you'll see this in places like uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which contains the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus would stand and say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Or Jesus would say things like, thus says the Lord, right? That, that he, had, he had the ability, thus says the Lord was the was the Old Testament prophet's way of saying God is speaking. Jesus says, I say to you, because he wasn't just a conduit of the, word, the message of God. He was, is the word of God. He was the source itself. To the point where when the disciples were asking for Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus looks, Philip was the one in John 14 that asks, you know, will you show us the father? And Jesus says, how long have I been with you? Do you not know me yet? He says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. There was no Old Testament prophet that could make this claim about himself. Moses couldn't make this claim about himself, right? Moses reflected the glory of God. Remember when Moses would come down from Sinai, his face was glowing and all the people were afraid of him. Why was his face glowing? Because he had experienced God in such a way that he was reflecting the glory of God to the people. But Moses wasn't God. The other prophets, they were, they were declaring a word from the Lord, but that is what it was. It was a word from the Lord. What Jesus was, was the Lord. I'm the father, I'm one, Jesus says. And so when he's questioned about it and he says, how long have you known me? Don't you know by now that that?" I am the father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. So there's no longer a need for a prophet to, in the Old Testament sense, the, so the new, by the way, just on a side, the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy, right, which I believe is a, is a New Testament spiritual gift, is nothing like the Old Testament office of prophet. Why? 
Because the perfect prophet has already come. <laughs> the perfect prophet has already, uh, is our, that office has already been fulfilled in Jesus. Just like we don't need priests and kings, as we're going to see in a minute. We don't need Old Testament prophets in the same way that we had Old Testament prophets. Because Jesus has already come and fulfilled that for us. So all of those Old Testament prophecies looking, are looking and find their, play, find their yes in Jesus. I'm going to remind you that Sunday when we're looking at the end of Daniel chapter 9. It finds its yes in Jesus. Regardless of what you think about the 70 weeks or 77s or 70 weeks of years, however you want to interpret the end of Daniel 9. And if you've got a way you want to interpret, maybe you'll tell me and I can know how to preach it on Sunday. Um, no, I, I know how I'm going to preach it on Sunday. Some of you just may not like it very much. Um, but regardless of, how you, regardless of how you think about it, right, it, it's got to find its yes in Jesus because all prophecy is about, it's about Jesus. It all points towards the, the work of Jesus. But not only the, the words point towards the work of Jesus, the, the, the office itself is fulfilled in Jesus being able to come and say, I tell you, when you see me, you have seen the Father. The second office is the office of priest. The old, who are the Old Testament priests, right? The Old Testament priests were those, in our minds, we go immediately to the Levitical priests, those of the tribe of Levi who would represent the people of God before the Lord, right? They would in the tabernacle um, represent the people of God. They would make sacrifices for the people of God. They would pray and make, uh, make offerings for the people of God. Uh, and then once uh, Solomon builds the temple, they would do so in, in the temple. The high priest kind of being the epitome of Old Testament priesthood, going in on the day of atonement uh, into the Holy of Holies, representing the people, right? That this is, this is what the priest did. There were other priestly functions outside of the Levitical uh, priesthood that we see pieces of in people, even like Moses uh, but also in, in people like Abraham and like I said, like Noah, people who made sacrifices, right? Noah made sacrifices, Abraham made sacrifices, Melchizedek, this, uh, this, this different priest. But our minds, when we think about the office of priest, uh, we, we automatically go to, to the, the old covenant, to, to the, the covenant of sacrifice, where for generation, uh, generation after generation, people uh, would 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 serve in the priesthood because they were in that, in that tribe uh, that, that did that, this, this Levitical tribe, all the way through the, through the, days, of, the days of Jesus. And then we, we have Jesus fulfilling that office, um, not by sacrificing animals as generations and centuries of priests had done, but by sacrificing himself. So Jesus becomes both the sacrificer and the sacrificer right? Fulfilling this office. Now, the best place to go for this is in Hebrews chapter 10. And we're actually going to look kind of at almost the whole chapter. So if you want to, you can turn your Bible there. I'm going to. I'm just going to kind of read through this and, and walk through some of this that we see in, in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, all of Hebrews, by the way, is, is, is really the, the, the story of, of the New Testament book of Hebrews, which some think is a, is a sermon, and not an epistle. It kind of reads like a sermon. It's this doctrinal treatment of the sacrificial system and how Jesus becomes the new and better sacrifice and the new and better priest and the new and better representative before God for his people. 
Well, let's look and see what, what, what we see here, right? Look, 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 start in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, saying that what they were experiencing in the Old Testament, when it says that it was a shadow, means that it wasn't a perfect system. It was pointing towards something, right? It was, it was telling, it was foreshadowing something to come. So not only Old Testament prophecy was pointing to Jesus, but even the Old Testament sacrificial system is pointing to Jesus. Um, so for the law uh, has but a shadow of good things to come instead of true form of the reality, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleaned would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written uh, of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin that was not the same as the Old Testament sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice of sin was a sin of what well, was a sacrifice of, uh, of animal blood, right? It still required blood, but it was animals and it was imperfect because of that. And that's the argument the author of, of Hebrews makes is this, this imperfect sacrifice, which is why they had to do it over and over again. It's why he said, if, if it was perfect, right? People would have gone home and had no recollection at all of their sin. Like it would have, it would have done away with sin permanently, but it didn't. So you had to keep coming back and doing it over and over again. So it was a different kind of sacrifice that the, that, that the, this new and better priest is making for us. Not only is it a, a new and better sacrifice, it is a perfect sacrifice Jesus offers himself, we're going to be told here in the text, as a perfect sacrifice. Pick up in verse 8. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offered offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the, the means of the sacrifice and the maker of the sacrifice is now different. Instead of it being a priest in the line of Levi, passed on from generation to generation, offering an imperfect sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a ram, something different, you know, something of, of the animal kingdom. Now it is the priest himself giving himself as the perfect sacrifice. And it is a perfect sacrifice because it does what verse 10 says. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that contrasts with the beginning of the passage. The beginning of the passage says you have to re-sacrifice these animals over and over again because they weren't perfect. But the sacrifice of Jesus is a perfect sacrifice being both priest and sacrifice that Jesus gives himself as the perfect priest and gives himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all. And because of this, he now becomes the perfect high priest. Now remember, there were, as we said, there were lots of priests, right? 
And most of the priests would serve um, in, uh, they, they would serve in the temple, in the, in the synagogue, or it's not in the synagogue, in the, in the tabernacle in the temple, they would serve two times a year. Uh, and they, w- they would do this, right? And then there were some special times that they would get to do it like once in their whole lifetime because there were so many of them. Um, and, and that was, they kind of had this rotation, but the high priest, particularly in the day of Jesus, the high priest was only supposed to be the high priest for a certain period of time, but there had arisen this high priestly family and they were basically just passing it amongst themselves. Um, and then they would, they would give it back and, and nobody else really ever got to be the high priest. And it had kind of devolved into this position of power and authority, like so many things in when humans corrupt stuff is, is what happens. Well, Jesus comes along, makes this perfect sacrifice as the, as the priest, makes this a perfect sacrifice, sacrificing himself as this perfect sacrifice once and for all. And because of that, here's what we read. As er, and every, sorry, back in verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool uh, for his feet. So Jesus is, is elevated because of the sacrifice that he makes as the perfect priest. He now becomes the great high priest for all time. So from the sacrificial standpoint of the work of the priest, Jesus replaces that which was a shadow with that which is perfect. He makes that which was imperfect, perfect by sacrificing himself. But that wasn't the only thing that priests do. Priests represented the people before God, not just in their sin. The sacrificial system was... um, done in for forgiveness of sin it was done to to and and you would do it on the day of atonement but you would also do it at other times i don't have time to go into the old testament sacrificial system but there were lots of times that they would sacrifice different things women with it's it's why uh, mary and joseph go to the temple right to with jesus when he was a baby uh was because certain sacrifices were supposed to be made at, at certain times basically it was a 365 uh day a year process where sacrifices uh, were made for, for all manner of things. But that wasn't the only thing that the priest did. The priest um, would go in and attend to the table that was in the, uh, in the, uh, in the temple. They would pray in the temple. Their, their role was to represent the people before God. And Jesus does this too. He leads us into God's presence so that we now no longer need a temple in Jerusalem that we can go to or to a special priesthood that stands between us and God. So when you, you know, if you've ever seen a, a picture, an image, uh, a model of the Old Testament temple, there were only, you could only go so far. Gentiles had a place that they could go. No, it wasn't very far at all. And... Um, uh, women had a place that they could go. Jewish women had a place that they could go. And then Jewish men could go further, but then priests could go even further and the high priest could go even further. And Jesus does away with all of this. All of that represented like access to God. And Jesus goes in once and for all making the sacrifice and, and restores, brings in this relationship that, that is completely different, meaning that we don't have a place that we go anymore. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about this a little bit on, on Sunday when I'm dealing with, with the end of Daniel chapter 9. 
But I've now led two trips from our church to Israel and I try really hard. Sometimes I, I mess up and I say it. I try really hard not to call it the Holy Land. You wanna know why? Because that's not what it is, <laughs> right? People refer to it as that. But th- we don't need to go to a place to meet God anymore. And I, you don't, you, we don't have to go to the Temple Mount. It's not even a temple there anymore. There's a, there's a mosque there. But we don't go there because that's not, God's not more there than he is here. By the way, God's not more in this room than he is in the living room of your We don't gather here because God's here. We gather here because this is where we gather. And when we're together, we believe God's with us, right? But we don't have to go somewhere and have someone represent us. Look, keep, let's, let's keep going in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opens for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure blood. Think about what he's saying here, that we have a confidence to be able to go into the, into the, presence of the father without a representative, uh, without an earthly representative, because we now have a heavenly representative. We don't have an imperfect representative that passes from one generation to another in the high priest. We now have a perfect representative in Jesus. So this may get a little controversial, but I'll I'll say Um, it's not really controversial. It just depends on the way that you view these things. And here's the way that I view it, right? So I get, I've been asked before, if I ever thought they would find the Ark of the Covenant. I have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is. Some people believe it's in heaven. Some people believe it's lost. Some people believe the Greeks took it. Babylonians took it. It's buried under, you know, there's, there's, there, the Ethiopians have it. Like there's any number of things. People have asked, you know, you everything they find it. But like, I, I don't know. I think the more important question is if they did find it, would you touch it? Can I give you my answer? I would absolutely touch it. I would absolutely touch it. You want to know why? Because I have a perfect high priest that says with confidence, I can go into the presence of God. They didn't have that. You know, those stories of the guy trying to, you know, (laughs) puts his hand on it. And then it's because he had an imperfect system, right? We now have a perfect system. If the Holy of Holies still existed, would you go into it? Sure, I would. That's why the whole thing tore, right? You want to know why the curtain tore? Because we can go into it now. We have confidence. Not because of anything I've done. Remember, it is by grace alone. Not by anything I've done, but because Jesus has given me the confidence to do exactly what the author of Hebrews says here. By the new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. The flesh of Jesus torn for us says, come to God. Not in, the, not in this imperfect way, but now as the fulfillment of the office of high priest. And then he does the other thing that high priests do. He prays for us. This is what high priests did. Our priests prayed for the people. We no longer need that. Old Testament priests prayed for people. But Jesus has done this for us. Elsewhere in Hebrews, in Hebrews 7, we read, consequently, he's able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. They used this Sunday when we were looking at Daniel's prayer, right? Like we, we can pray with confidence knowing that Jesus is there for us making intercession. 
Jesus is the only person in the whole universe, in all of existence, for all of eternity, who can be such a heavenly high priest because he is God and man. This is why the New Testament authors refer to him as the mediator between God and man. There was only one who could bridge this gap. There was only one priest. This is why it's not only because the sacrificial system was a shadow that the priest failed ultimately to bring people to God. It was because they were fully man. And no man can bring someone to God. But God can. (laughs) And so Jesus, being fully man and fully God, is now the perfect priest in our place. So he is this perfect priest, making, made the perfect sacrifice once and for all, providing an opportunity for us to have with confidence go into the presence of God and is always praying perfect prayers on our behalf in our place. So he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament priest and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament king. In the Old Testament, the king has had the authority to rule over the nation of Israel. So think about the priest and the king in this way. So what's the difference, right? The priest represented the people before God, okay? The the people would sin, the priest would make sacrifice for them. The people would need prayer, the priest would pray for them. The king represented God before the people. He exercised the power of God to rule over the Old Testament nation of Israel. But in, from the very beginning of the story of Jesus, here's what we're told, that Jesus is going to fulfill that office. Now, think how badly they did it. I mean, even David, the best king Israel had was David. And David failed miserably, you know, miserably in his sin Uh, against Bathsheba and against her uh, husband, Uriah. I mean, David failed miserably. The the sins of David carry into the sins of Solomon, which ultimately divide the kingdom, leading to wicked kings who failed to do what they were supposed to do. But when some wise men from the east come looking for Jesus, what is it they say in Matthew 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? From the very beginning of the story, and Matthew writing the story that Matthew is, is, is writing from a very Jewish perspective, Every gospel author wrote from a particular perspective and to a particular audience. And Matthew is very Jewish in his perspective. And it's why he's alone in telling us the story of the Magi. I think he's alone in telling us the story of the Magi for this line right here. Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? And, And what does another ruler end up nailing over the cross of Calvary? king of the Jews, <laughs> right? This is, this is who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament king. But during his earthly ministry, he refused to be made a king. They tried. That's actually a bigger part of the story of Jesus than we give credit to. I think a lot of what happens in the story of Jesus begins to make more sense to us when we understand just how politicized their culture was. And if there's any 
culture that should understand political tribalism, it's ours. Because we live in just this highly charged, and you know, Rob and I were just up here talking about it, because uh, it's spilling out of just, it's spilling out of like national politics into other things. Like the, the, we were talking about the Southern Baptist Convention and, and the convention's coming up in June and we're going to be doing some election stuff. And it's just, it's gotten unfortunately like ugly. And it's because the tribalism that we've experienced, this political tribalism that we're experiencing on a national level, we're now experiencing like in these micro levels and other areas of our lives. It's really ugly. And that was what first century Israel was like. First century Israel was, was just incredibly politicized. And so like the conflict, for instance, between the Pharisees and the tax collectors wasn't just because the tax collectors were tax collectors and then nobody likes anybody from the IRS, right? That wasn't what it was. It was because the tax collectors had aligned themselves with Rome. That, that was the, and, and so you have these whole, you have this other group, the, the zealots, right? And their whole idea was to, was to free, one of the disciples was one of those people, was to free Israel from Roman rule. So when we understand that undercurrent in the, in the life of Jesus, we understand a little better John 16 or John 6, 15 that says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We got to keep that idea in our minds that, that a lot of the misunderstanding about Jesus was, hey, we want you to do this now. You know, come be our, come be our king, you know. I've seen people saying that about the Ukrainian president. They're like, can we just get that guy? Could that guy come and like be a, you know, he's probably got a whole lot of flaws too. Jesus didn't know. Jesus had no flaws. Like Jesus would have been the perfect earthly king. It just wasn't time for it yet. So he resists it. He, he refuses the attempt of this undercurrent to give into that because that wasn't what was happening then in that moment. But after his resurrection, the father gives to Jesus the authority that comes with the Davidic king, this prophetic kingdom. And that authority is first exercised over the church. In Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, we read that he, God, the father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is not named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come and put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So in a now perspective, Jesus is king of us. Now it is not wrong to say that Jesus is king of the universe because he is, okay? But from a, a now, like a right now, ruling and reigning perspective, Jesus is king over his people. That's us. Jesus is king of Nazareth River Baptist Church. He's king of my heart. He, I hope he's king of yours, right? It, it, is, it is fully right to refer to him as King Jesus. That's how uh, Eric Thomas, the pastor at First Baptist Church of Norfolk, uh, a friend of mine, great brother in Christ, when he writes or tweets or whatever about Jesus, he very often calls him King Jesus, it's just reflecting on this idea that Jesus is king right, right now over his church. But that's not the only authority that Jesus has. Jesus has been given authority over the entire universe, over all things. And one day that authority will be recognized. It will be, you could say it like this, more fully recognized by everyone and all people for all time when Jesus returns in power and glory to reign as king. 
This is the not yet of the kingdom of Jesus. This is the part that is yet to be fully realized, even though it is already actually true. It is not, it's, it's, it's the consummation uh, and, and full coming of the kingdom. We see this in Revelation 19 when, you know, this vision, apocalyptic vision again, meaning that Jesus, this isn't literal about Jesus Jesus will literally come and this vision will be true in his coming when this is what John sees on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now for it to be true, doesn't mean Jesus has to have a tattoo that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thighs, right? It's symbolic. What's it symbolic of? That it is true, that it is who he is to his person. He is, and this is, will one day be realized by the whole world that Jesus has fulfilled the office of king. So prophet, priest, and king. These three Old Testament authors, this, this, this is known as, as biblical doctor. This is, this is tracing these threads from the Old Testament and they find their yes in, in Jesus. So when Jesus fulfills these three things, what he accomplishes then is known as the atonement. It's the doctrine word that kind of encompasses what Jesus accomplishes through his life, death, uh, and, and resurrection as the fulfillment of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So let's talk. I only got 15 minutes. I don't even know why I'm getting through all this, but uh, we're going to talk some about the atonement. So when we're talking about right in, in Christ alone, it, we're, we're, we're picturing Jesus as the fulfillment of uh, prophet, so I don't need another prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of priest, so I don't need a priest between me and God. Jesus is the fulfillment of king, so he is the ruler of his church, and he is the ruler of all the universe. I don't need someone else in that place. It is Christ alone, and by, by having faith in Jesus alone in this way, then our sins are atoned for. Now, we, I have to back up and ask the question, like, what is it about God that would even cause him to want to, to, need, to, want to and need to atone for sins? Well, there's two things about uh, the eternal attributes of God that are important just to mention here briefly. The first is that God is love. That's a biblical statement that is true. <laughs> God is love, right? First John tells us, Jesus himself attests to this in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. I talked a little bit on Sunday morning about eternal attributes of God. Now, I'm gonna remind you that in just a minute. Remember, eternal attributes of God are things that have been true about God for eternity past and eternity future because God does not change. Um, uh, he, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God's love ex ex has existed for all beyond thing. You can, you could say for all time, but that would be incomplete because time hasn't always existed, but God has. And, and so God's love exists even outside of time before the foundation of the world. God loved us, right? God loved, um, his, his people. And so, uh, it's because of that attribute that would cause God to atone for sin. But then you always ask the question, well, why not? Why does sin just, why didn't God just love us? In our sin, why does sin have to be atoned for? Because God is also righteous and just. And I talked about the righteousness of God, uh, that God is not eternally wrathful, but God is eternally righteous. And because of that, God is just. And, and God's justice uh, it rains down and must punish sin in some way because it is an affront to the righteousness of God. So 
then this is what Jesus accomplishes. And we see in Romans 3, whom God, talking about Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means righteous sacrifice. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So God, in his righteousness, still had to punish when he says he passed over former sins, he's talking about sins in the Old Testament that weren't forgiven fully because the system was incomplete. So the death of Jesus applies both directions. You hear me talk about this all the time, right? That it's not just that the Old Testament people were saved by looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus, but the death of Jesus actually covers sins that God had passed over in former times. That sin had to be dealt with. Because of the, the righteousness of God. It had to be dealt with. It had to be punished. And where was it punished? It was punished in the righteous sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So, so if that's the cause of the atonement, then what, what is the nature of it? What, what are the parts if we, if we break it down? Well, we can break the, the atonement down into several parts. The first one is Christ's obedience for us. Think about it like this. That if you want to say that salvation is by works, you're not wrong as long as the salvation by works being the work of Jesus alone. Salvation was accomplished by works, just not yours. It was accomplished by the works of Jesus. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about faith. And I said I was going to come back to that idea here. That Christ's obedience to, God, obedience to God was in our place. So Jesus perfectly kept the law of God in our place. This is the active obedience of Jesus, that he actively did what the Father had told him to do. He actively chose perfectly to do that which no one else had ever done, and that is obey God to perfection. And this was necessary. Christ had to live a perfectly obedient life in order that God may give his righteousness to us. This is known as, as imputation, that, that we give Jesus our sin, which we'll see in a minute, and he gives us his righteousness. But that righteousness had to be earned. It, Jesus lived tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin so that we might be righteous. So Paul writes in Philippians 3, he says, and be found in him, talking about Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, remember, we don't earn it, but Jesus earned it for us and then it's imparted to us. So part of the atonement when we think about the atonement, I'm going to talk about this on You're getting a little preview of Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday, I'm going to be preaching in 1 John 2. Um, and 1 John 2, the first six verses of 1 John 2 is about how the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus calls us to follow the resurrected Jesus. That's kind of my sermon outline for Easter, if you were just wondering. It's like five weeks from now, right? Easter's real late this year. Um. And, and this is, this is what, what, what had to happen, right? It's, when we think about the atonement, very often we just think about this, this one afternoon where Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> the atonement didn't start, you know, one afternoon with Jesus dying on the cross. The atonement started 
when Mary gives birth to the Son of God, and from that moment on, he lives righteously in my place. So Jesus didn't just die in your place. Jesus lived in your place. That's an important distinction for us to make, that he was obedient for us. So that's one aspect of the atonement. But the other is the fact that Jesus died in your place, that Christ suffered for us. And, and he, he suffered, and, and again, think, think broader than just the cross. Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. Jesus suffered his whole life. Go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry begins, most people trace the beginning of Jesus' ministry to what event? The baptism, right? He's, he's baptized. You know, there's some things that happen before that, like, um, like the, the, the wedding in Cana. Uh, but, but the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan by John, that's kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And immediately following that, he, what happens? He's tempted in the wilderness, right? So his whole, his whole ministry is marked by suffering. He, he suffered in the wilderness 40 days without food, being directly tempted in all ways by, by Satan. We only know of three of them. The Bible authors record three of them for us, but there's no reason to assume those were the only three temptations that Jesus faced. Knowing what was before him, suffering in the, in the wilderness in that way, but his suffering didn't even just begin there. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I think there, there is a suffering component to the entire life of Jesus as, as he was this suffering servant doing the will of the Father in our place, knowing all along what is to come. As he grows in maturity and then enters into ministry. Then he experiences opposition throughout his ministry. He, he, he experienced hostility, again, back in Hebrews 12 this time. The author writes, consider him who's endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may grow weary or faint hearted. You may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know, we sometimes think, oh gosh, the temptation to sin is just so great. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, woe is me. And the author of Hebrews says, <laughs> love the way he puts it. He's like, have you shed your blood over it yet? Because Jesus did, and even in his suffering was perfect in that. Then you get to the cross, and there's actual pain on the cross, like the physical pain and death. And the physical pain of the cross, I don't have time or reason, I think, to go into this here. Most of you have probably heard description of, of the physical torment of Jesus on the cross. I'm not talking about the spiritual and emotional and mental aspect of it, just the physical aspect of the cross. I mean, the, 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 the Romans had perfected torture. It was the most painful way a person could, it was, it was intentionally slow. They would get you to the point of death by beating you before you go to the cross and then hang you on the cross in such a way that you would be at the threshold of death and yet not die until they were ready for you to die. It was just an incredible agony, the physical pain and torment of that, but also the spiritual pain, the bearing of sin. And this was foretold. Isaiah told us that this is what the Messiah would do. He says in Isaiah 53, all we like his sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own side and the Lord has allayed on him the iniquity of us all. 
Just think for yourself in your own grief. And I talked Sunday morning about godly grief and how godly grief is a good thing. But you know, godly grief is, can, can be a struggle sometimes. Uh, and that's just my sin. <laughs> that's just my grief over my sin. Imagine bearing the sins of the world and knowing it. The, the spiritual grief that Jesus bore on the cross is magnified millions of times over compared to what my grief is and his awareness of it. The, the pain on the cross isn't only physical and, and spiritual, it's, it's, it's uh, relational. It's clear that Jesus' friends abandoned him. In Matthew 26, we're told that, that all the disciples left and fled him. There was one who follows him across for at least a period of time. But eventually they're all gone. And one of the last things that Jesus does, quote Psalm 22, the first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there's some doctrinal debate over what does it actually mean that God forsook Jesus. Jesus didn't stop being God in that moment. Remember, God doesn't change. God has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus never ceased to be God in that moment. But you can at least see a way that in his humanity, bearing the weight of sin, that he feels this disconnect from the Father that he had felt during his entire earthly ministry, even though he had emptied himself when he comes to earth, there was still this connection, and now that connection seems as if it's severed on the cross. Ultimately, bearing the wrath of God on the cross. And the verse, one of the verses I'll preach on Easter, 1 John 2 Two, he is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And again, propitiation, righteous sacrifice. Jesus becomes the object of God's wrath. Just as Jesus is the object of our faith, in that moment on the cross, Jesus becomes the object of God's wrath. All of God's wrath pours out on Jesus. Instead of pouring on me and instead of pouring on you, it pours on him. I've got a couple other things I'm going to say. I may, I may, I'm going to save a couple of these until next week or until two weeks from now um, because I can, I can talk about how these things work in there. So even though I've got three minutes left, I've got way more. I've got more than three minutes of stuff to say. So I'm going to fold it into a couple of weeks from now when we're talking about why this still matters because a couple of these things do still matter. Really, the main section that I have left is, is all of this comes together in a doctrine known as penal substitutionary atonement. That, that, and every word of that, right, it was, it was penal, meaning it was, it was wrath, it was punishment, it was substitutionary, meaning it was in our place, and that, that it was atoning, that it ransomed us, it redeems us from our sin. Um, but it matters. And so I'm, I'm going to be able to come back to that when I, because it's greatly in, um, under attack these days. Uh, some have coined that cosmic child abuse. And, and so I'll talk about that um, when, in two weeks when we get to why this still matters today, because it, it does. So I'll, I'll bring all of that together. So let me close this uh, in, in prayer. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to die in our place so that we may live, that he is our perfect prophet, that we can look to him and um, not just hear things from God, but see God. Thank you that he is our priest, sacrificing himself as the perfect sacrifice, becoming the mediator between God and man. 
so that we may confidently come into your throne room and that he is our perfect king, ruling and reigning over his church, one day to rule and reign physically in the new heaven and the new earth for all time. Thank you, God, that we can look to him and be saved because in his life he lived perfectly in our place and in his death he died taking on the sins of the world, bearing the cross and the shame and the wrath that was meant for us, taking it so that all who believe in him might be saved. God, would Jesus alone be the object of our faith, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us uh, tonight. We look forward to being back next week, another doctrinal piece on the glory of God alone and then wrapping it up in two weeks. Thanks for being here. God bless.